Hi, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. The Dallas Weekly Newspaper, BET, The Kansas City Beacon, Anscape.com, Smithsonian Magazine, The Stars and Stripes Newspaper, and I'm going to get things started off with an obituary about Harry Belafonte. Harry Belafonte, singer, actor, and civil rights activist, dies at 96. It was written by Dennis McMillan and published April 25, 2023, at the LATimes.com website. Segregation was rampant, doors were closed, and in 1950s America, the odds of a black entertainer ascending to the Broadway stage, concert venues, and screens large and small seemed impossibly long. Yet with cool confidence, a magnetic charm, and an armload of wistful Caribbean folk songs, Harry Belafonte beat the odds in a historic rise to stardom. The first black man to win a Tony, the first black man to win an Emmy, the first artist to record an album that sold one million copies. Well aware of the battles still to be fought, Belafonte also became a civil rights activist, a confidant to the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., a friend of the marginalized and a globe-trotting humanitarian. I've got to be a part of whatever the rebellion is that tries to change all this, he told the New York Times in 2001. The anger is a necessary fuel. Rebellion is healthy. Long a symbol of what was right and decent in the world, Belafonte died Tuesday, April 25th, at his home in New York of congestive heart failure with his wife Pamela at his side, his longtime spokesman Ken Sunshine said. Belafonte was 96. Belafonte, who fueled an international calypso craze in the 1950s with his addictive version of the Banana Boat song, squeezed so much into his decades-long career that it was difficult to fathom it all. Described in Look magazine in 1957 as the first black matinee idol in entertainment history, the tall, trim, and smoothly handsome singer amassed an impressive string of early accolades in an era when black actors were mostly cast as maids, domestic helpers, and laborers. In 1954, he won a Tony Award for Best Featured Actor in a Musical for his performance in the Broadway review John Murray Anderson's Almanac, and six years later won an Emmy for his performance in the Revlon Review, Tonight with Belafonte. His 1956 album Calypso, which included Jamaica Farewell and Deo, his version of the Banana Boat song, charted at number one for a staggering 31 weeks. With his signature stage attire of a partially open, tailored cotton shirt and tight black slacks, Belafonte captivated audiences. A 1959 Time magazine cover story called his act a brilliantly planned and executed combination of artistry and showmanship. Belafonte's emergence as a hugely popular entertainer with both black and white audiences arrived during a post-World War II era when the civil rights movement was just coming into focus and attitudes were slowly shifting. As far as black entertainers were concerned, Belafonte in many ways seemed to be a startling new kind of figure, said Donald Bogle, a culture critic and author of numerous books on black Americans in film and television. There hadn't been somebody quite like him on the scene. And television, which was becoming a potent cultural force in America at the time, helped make Belafonte and his music popular with a vast audience because people could see him and his look was very important, said Bogle. 
Through television, you got a sense of his sex appeal, said Vogel. Women loved him, and men felt comfortable with Belafonte as well. Belafonte was one of a number of popular black entertainers and actors, including Sammy Davis Jr., Eartha Kitt, Dorothy Danrich, and Sidney Poitier, who emerged at the time. Belafonte, whom singer and actress Diane Carroll described to Time as the most beautiful man I've ever set eyes on, was also visible on the big screen in a handful of movies during the 50s, a time when few black performers were offered prominent film roles. After making his movie debut in 1953 as a Southern school principal opposite Damrich's teacher in Bright Road, Belafonte starred with the actress in the hit 1954 musical Carmen Jones. In 1957, Belafonte broke another color barrier and stirred controversy when he became the first black American actor to play a romantic lead in a feature movie opposite a white leading lady, Joan Fontaine, in the Caribbean set film Island in the Sun. But as Vogel observed, the filmmakers would not allow Belafonte and Fontaine to kiss, nor was their relationship fully explored. In 1959, Belafonte starred in two films, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the odds against tomorrow. But Bogle said Belafonte in movies was never what he was on television in terms of his impact, in part because of the compromises of the scripts in his own persona. He didn't have that kind of magnetism on the big screen. Belafonte, whose later film credits included Buck and the Preacher, Uptown Saturday Night, and Kansas City, established one of the first all-black music publishing companies in the late 50s. It was part of Belafonte Enterprises, whose subsidiaries included a film production company called Harbell Productions. Other business units handled the singer's concert tours and back Broadway plays, including Lorraine Hansberry's acclaimed A Raisin in the Sun. A supporter of Senator John F. Kennedy's 1960 presidential campaign, Belafonte sang at Kennedy's inaugural gala and was named cultural advisor to the then newly created Peace Corps. As his fame and fortune grew in the 1950s, the singer-actor devoted increasing amounts of his time and money to supporting the emerging civil rights movement. Belafonte already was politically active when King called him in 1956 to ask the entertainer to meet with him at a Baptist church in Harlem while he was on a fundraising swing for the group running the bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama. The two men had a long private meeting in a Sunday school classroom in the church basement. It was a life-changing moment, Belafonte recalled in a 2007 interview with The Guardian. From then on, I was in his service in his world of planning, strategy, and thinking. We became very close immediately. Belafonte's friendship with King included holding a secret fundraiser in his Manhattan apartment to help raise bail money for King's Birmingham campaign in 1963, knowing that some of the civil rights leader's supporters would likely be arrested. Belafonte also rounded up a contingent of stars to appear on stage with King at the Lincoln Memorial during the historic March on Washington a few months later. Belafonte, who helped launch one of the first voter registration drives in Mississippi and provided financing for the Freedom Riders, also served as a middleman between King and Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy. Decades later, Belafonte's social activism took a high-profile twist. Inspired by Irish singer-songwriter Bob Geldof's Band-Aid charity supergroup, whose single Do They Know It's Christmas raised money for famine relief in Ethiopia, Belafonte contacted talent manager Ken Cragen and proposed doing a similar project in the United States. 
The result was the star-studded We Are the World recording that raised millions for famine relief in Africa in 1985. Belafonte, who was appointed a UNICEF Goodwill Ambassador in 1987, was a 1989 recipient of a Kennedy Center honor. In a toast to Belafonte during the Black Tie tribute, then-Senator Edward Kennedy said the entertainer has given nobly and unselfishly to the cause of making our country a better place and our planet a better world. Many great artists have a conscience too, but none greater than his. His two qualities that describe the brilliance of his life, courage and excellence, Kennedy said. Belafonte also was awarded the National Medal of Arts in 1994, and in 2000, the two-time Grammy winner received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. Throughout his long career, Belafonte continued to sing Deo, which he once described as having become an established part of American folk culture. He wouldn't think of doing a concert without performing it, he told the Times in 2000. I enjoy doing it very much, he said, and audiences enjoy it more than I do because they sing along with me, and they do it with gusto. Explaining the original Banana Boat song in a 1993 interview with the New York Times, he said, That song is a way of life. It's a song about my father, my mother, my uncles, the men and women who toil in the banana fields, the cane fields of Jamaica. It's a classic work song. He was born Harold George Belafonte Jr. in New York City on March 1, 1927. His mother was a domestic worker. His father, a violence-prone alcoholic at the time, was a cook who most often worked on United Fruit Company boats between New York and Caribbean and South American ports. I was born into poverty, grew up in poverty, and for a long time, poverty was all I thought I'd know, Belafonte wrote in his 2011 memoir, Harry Belafonte, My Song. He made a number of visits to Jamaica when he was young. And in 1936, when he was nine, his mother took him and his five-year-old brother Dennis to Jamaica to live full-time to get away from what he later said were the dangers and temptations of living in Harlem. When their mother was unable to find a job in Jamaica, she returned to New York and left her two sons behind to attend school. Belafonte's parents were legally separated in 1940, and his mother brought him and his brother back to New York to live with her. Belafonte, who later discovered he was dyslexic, dropped out of school midway through the ninth grade and worked a series of odd jobs before enlisting in the Navy shortly after turning 17 in 1944. He was stationed at Port Chicago outside San Francisco, where he loaded military ships bound for the Pacific Theater in the final months of World War II. Returning to Harlem after his discharge in December 1945, he got a job working as a janitor's assistant in an apartment building. That January, he hung Venetian blinds for a tenant, an actress, who as a tip gave him two tickets to a play at the American Negro Theater in Harlem. The play about black servicemen returning home to Harlem was the first he'd ever seen, and it changed his life. That play didn't just speak to me, it mesmerized me. This was a whole new world, an exhilarating world, he wrote in his memoir. He had no intention of becoming an actor at the time, but just to get close to this wonderful new world, he volunteered to be a stagehand at the theater. He soon was asked to read for a small role in a comedy. That led to a larger role in another play. By July 1946, Belafonte was playing a leading role in the American Negro Theater's production of Juno and the Paycock. 
Belafonte, who became close friends with another fledgling young actor at the theater, Sidney Portier, began attending the dramatic workshop of the New School for Social Research on the GI Bill. A break in landing a role in an off-Broadway production of Sojourner Truth in 1948, however, did not immediately lead to more acting jobs for the 21-year-old Belafonte. Newly married to his first wife, Marguerite, he began working full-time pushing clothes racks in the garment district. Then an unexpected break came. The manager of the Royal Roost, a top New York City jazz club, who had heard Belafonte sing in a play, offered him a job singing during intermissions. Before long, Belafonte was packing the club, and he worked from making $70 a week to $200 a week. It was breathtaking, Belafonte recalled. I went from being a nobody who didn't think he could sing to walking on stage at Carnegie Hall. One night that spring to accept a plaque from the Pittsburgh Courier, an African-American newspaper, as the most promising new singer in the country. Twice divorced, Belafonte had four children, Adrian and Sherry from his first wife, and David and Gina with his second wife, Julie. He is also survived by his wife, Pamela Frank, and eight grandchildren. That was the obituary titled, Harry Belafonte, Singer, Actor, and Civil Rights Activist Dies at 96. It appeared at the LATimes.com website. It was written by Dennis McClellan and was published April 25, 2023. The next reading I have is from the military-oriented newspaper Stars and Stripes and its Stripes.com website. The title is, Fort Lee renamed Fort Greg Adams to honor two pioneering black officers. It was written by Matthew Adams and published April 27, 2023. After more than a century as Fort Lee, the Army officially renamed the post Fort Greg Adams on Thursday, April 27th, honoring two black officers who helped pave the way for an integrated military. The inspirational quality of the two leaders that we now honor is something that should echo in the mind and heart of every soldier and every American. Major General Mark Simmerly, commander of the Combined Arms Support Command, said at a ceremony honoring Lieutenant General Arthur Gregg and Lieutenant Colonel Charity Adams. Fort Gregg Adams, which is outside Richmond, Virginia, is the third of nine Army posts scheduled to be renamed as the military works to redesignate bases that honor Confederate leaders from the Civil War. Fort Pickett, Virginia, and Fort Rucker, Alabama have already been renamed Fort Barfoot and Fort Novacell, respectively. The next three scheduled to be renamed are Fort Hood, Texas on May 9th, Fort Benning, Georgia on May 11th, and Fort Bragg, North Carolina on June 2nd. Fort Gordon, Georgia, Fort A.P. Hill, Virginia, and Fort Polk, Louisiana are also to be renamed, but dates have not been scheduled. I was very honored that they felt I was worthy, but you know, you don't take it too seriously, Greg said at the renaming ceremony. I was aware that there was a number of really outstanding people up for consideration. When the decision was made that the post would be redesignated Greg Adams, I was just overwhelmed. Lieutenant General Arthur Gregg served in the Army from 1946 to 1981, rising from private to a three-star general in logistics. At 94, he is the only living person in modern Army history to have an installation named after him, according to the Army. Gregg was born into segregation and entered the Army when segregation still existed. Former President Harry Truman signed an executive order in 1948 to integrate the military, but it took until 1954 before it was completed. 
Greg said he hoped to land a spot as a laboratory technician position when he received orders for West Germany. When he arrived, he learned his job was not available to him because the Army did not have medical facilities there staffed with black soldiers. His new assignment was joining the 3,511th Quartermaster Transportation Truck Company. After completing officer training school in 1949, his first assignment in 1950 was at Fort Lee, where he became an instructor at the Quartermaster School. In 1966, he commanded one of the largest battalions in Vietnam and earned a meritorious unit citation as a result. Greg was promoted to general in 1972 and received his second star in 1976. The following year, he earned his third star and was named Director of Logistics for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. When Greg finished his military career, he retired as the Army's highest-ranked minority at the time. I hope that this community will look with pride at the name Fort Greg Adams and that the name will instill pride in every soldier, Greg said. In 1942, Lieutenant Colonel Charity Adams served in the newly created Women's Army Auxiliary Corps and eventually led the first African-American women's unit to serve overseas, the 6,888th Postal Battalion. Stationed in Birmingham, England, they sorted and organized mail for soldiers in the European theater during World War II. Her unit was given six months to clear out the backlog of three million letters and packages. Anyone who has ever served knows mail equals morale, said Charles Bowery, executive director of the U.S. Army Center of Military History. The 6,888th completed the job in half the time. The unit moved to facilities in France to organize more undelivered mail for troops serving in Europe. This postal battalion was crucial to disseminating 17 million pieces of mail in correspondence with soldiers during the height of the war. Adams' children, Stanley and Judith Early, attended the ceremony in honor of their mother who died in 2002. Stanley Early says she did a lot of things in her life, but having her name on the installation would be beyond icing on the cake. The Army is sending a powerful message when it names a post that trains thousands of soldiers a year for a logistician and a postal clerk, Bowery said. Leadership comes in many forms and service comes in many forms. When the U.S. military had to ramp up for World War I and later World War II, it had to build a lot of bases, Bowery said. Large tracts of land were purchased in the South because it offered warmer weather and the opportunity to train year-round. To appease communities in the region, the federal government allowed local input on naming bases. Fort Lee, named for Robert E. Lee, the most famous Confederate general of the Civil War and a Virginia resident, was established in 1917. It was part of a campaign to honor men who contributed during their lives to the development of the United States, according to the U.S. War Department. At the renaming ceremony, other places on the Army Post were renamed for Gregg and Adams, including streets in an officer's club now known as the Greg Adams Club. But when Greg served at the base, it was known as the Lee Club, and he wasn't permitted inside. On Thursday, Greg sat in the club talking with reporters, and his message was simple. He is proud of how far the Army has come since the integration of the military. We are a better Army, and we are a better country as a result, Greg said. That was the article, Fort Lee renamed Fort Greg Adams to honor two pioneering black officers. It was written by Matthew Adams and published April 27, 2023 at the Stripes.com website. The previous reading mentioned the commander of the 6,888th Battalion. 
Coming up next is a reading from Smithsonian Magazine specifically about that battalion. This appeared in the March 2023 edition of Smithsonian Magazine, and the title is Message Received by Jenny Gertz. The subtitle to the story is Glory Goes to the African-American Women Who Achieved a Vital Mission in World War II, Getting the Mail to the Troops. The 6,888th. When Romay Johnson Davis was in her 20s, she decided to do something millions of young men across the country were doing, enlist in World War II. All five of her brothers had already joined up. They were being pulled away one by one, and I had no playmates, Davis recalls. Most young women were staying in the United States and helping out on the home front. Even the iconic Rosie the Riveter was urging women to work in factories, not ship out overseas. But Davis's parents supported their only daughter's decision. My father was skeptical sometimes about my going off. But Mama said, child, see the world while you can. That's how Davis found herself on the Isle de France in February 1945 en route to Glasgow, Scotland. Among the passengers on board were more than 800 recruits from her unit. Women mostly in their late teens and 20s and in the segregated army of the era, all of them black. They will be doing something crucial to the war effort, clearing a massive backlog of undelivered mail. For two years or longer, soldiers had been waiting for letters and packages that still hadn't arrived. Morale was flagging and no one had been able to process the millions of individual pieces of mail piled up in European warehouses from floor to ceiling. During their ocean crossing, the ship suddenly lurched. Barrels rolled and young women screamed. Later, the group would learn that their captain had swerved to dodge an attack from a German U-boat. But at the height of the pandemonium, with heavy furniture sliding across the floor, all Davis knew was that there was no use panicking. She scolded her crying companions. You can't get off the ship, she said. You have to train yourself not to be so frightened that you can't enjoy. At 103 years old, Davis is the oldest surviving member of the 6888th Central Postal Directory Battalion the first battalion of African-American women ever to serve in the U.S. military overseas. She can tell stories of working long shifts in rat-infested warehouses in England and France, of chauffeuring military personnel around Europe during the deadliest conflict in human history. But when she looks back at the U-boat incident, her voice brims with amusement and pride. I asked the girls, I said, now what's the point of being afraid right now? You can't do one earthly thing but pray, she says with a chuckle. I guess I was the brave one. African-American men have been serving in the U.S. military since the American Revolution. During the Civil War, about 10% of Union soldiers were black. By World War I, black men were mostly limited to menial labor. There were exceptions. The 369th Infantry Regiment, a black unit known as the Harlem Hellfighters, started out unloading cargo on the docks. But when the French needed reinforcements in the trenches, the Hellfighters battled alongside them with the valor that earned them the prestigious Croix de Guerre. Meanwhile, some 1,800 black women were certified as nurses by the American Red Cross, but only 18 of them were allowed to actually serve, and even then, only at training camps in the U.S. In 1941, U.S. Representative Edith Norse Rogers of Massachusetts introduced a bill that gave women a larger role in the armed forces. 
President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed a version of the bill into law establishing the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, WAAC, for the purpose of making available to the national defense the knowledge, skill, and special training of women in the nation. The pioneering black educator Mary McLeod Bethune, working alongside her close friend, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, argued for a more prominent role for black women in the military. We must not fail America, Bethune urged her fellow African Americans. And as Americans, we must not let America fail us. In 1943, the WAAC dropped the word auxiliary and allowed women to become members of the regular army. Fanny Griffin McClendon, now 102, remembers enlisting in the army in New York City. I was just graduating from high school at the time, she says and I decided I'd go down and take the exam and see if they'd accept me, which they did. She went out to celebrate afterward with five other newly minted recruits who were also black. She wasn't used to drinking, and she returned to her apartment tipsy. Her mother was dismayed to learn that she joined the Army, asking her daughter, This is why you want to go into the service? So you can drink? McClendon's training at Fort Des Moines in Iowa was anything but a party. The recruits were impeccably dressed and ready each morning at 6.15. Reveille exercises were at 6.30, and after breakfast, the group spent all day marching formally between various classes and training sessions. Bed checks were at 11. On Saturdays, inspecting officers scrutinized every inch of their rooms and bathrooms and subjected them to intense questioning. All the while, the black women were kept separate from their white counterparts. Although about 6,500 black women enlisted in the Women's Army Corps during World War II, Charity Etna Adams, a young woman from South Carolina, was recommended by a dean at Wilberforce University, where she graduated with a triple major in math, physics, and Latin, and a minor in history. In her captivating 1989 memoir, One Woman's Army, Charity Adams Early, as she was then named, described her first trip home from Fort Des Moines. A steward on the train tried to bar her from the dining car, declaring, all persons in uniform first. Before she could object, a blonde man with a southern accent called out, well, what in the hell do you think that she has on? Her defender, a second lieutenant, went on, what in the world are we fighting this damn war for? She's giving her service too and can eat anywhere I can. And by Jesus, I'm going to eat with her in this diner. The steward finally let Adams through, and the blonde soldier did sit at her table. As black women rose through the ranks, civilians and military personnel continued to challenge their credentials. When Adams was promoted to major, a white colonel called her to his office and said bluntly, Don't let being an officer go to your head. You are still colored, and I want you to remember that. You people have to stay in your place. Why, your folks might have been slaves to my people right in South Carolina. The tirade went on for three quarters of an hour, and she wrote in her memoir, adding, I was proud of the fact that I maintained the position of attention for the whole time. In mid-December 1944, shortly after Adams' 26th birthday, a colonel asked whether she'd like to go overseas. She wondered if his question was rhetorical, since no group of African-American whacks had ever been sent to Europe. But Adams had been chosen to lead the first. A daunting task awaited the members of the 6th AAA Central Postal Directory Battalion. All U.S. service members stationed in Europe had individual file cards noting where they were at at any given time. But the troops had been moving quickly and the mail had fallen far behind. 
It didn't help that so many service members had the same name. For instance, there were 7,500 Robert Smiths, many listed under variations like Bob, Rob, and Bobby. After their harrowing voyage to Glasgow, the recruits traveled to Birmingham, England, where they moved into the King Edward School building. Their accommodations were primitive, with showers outside in the courtyard in the freezing February air. Their work environment was worse. One of the battalion's first tasks was to clear six airplane hangars filled to the brim with mail, including huge piles of Christmas parcels that had arrived during the recent Battle of the Bulge. Rats and other vermin were feasting on the baked goods. Windows were blacked out to deter air raids. The unit worked round the clock, seven days a week, in three eight-hour shifts that each processed an average of more than 65,000 pieces of mail. Some packages had been damaged beyond repair, so a special unit had to reassemble their scattered contents by matching up dates and packing materials. The 6888, as they were called, also had the task of censoring letters, making sure no sensitive information would compromise the war effort. The job seemed juicy at first, but many of the letters were tediously long-winded. In film footage from the era, the women of the 6888 looked cheerful and energetic as they sort letters and packages into bins and cubes. We as black women were used to being together as family, explained one of the women in the 2019 documentary, The 6888, No Male, Low Morale. We were trained and brought up like that. We respected each other. When trouble came with us, we were all together. That's why I think we got that mail down. The women had to do everything themselves. They fixed their own trucks and they fixed one another's hair. White wax in Europe could go to the local beauty parlors wherever they happened to be stationed. But black women needed special equipment and expertise that would have been available in Birmingham, Alabama, but not in Birmingham, England. The group's officers succeeded in getting all the straightening combs, Marcel irons, and other staples they needed, and the unit built its own beauty salon. African-American nurses stationed around the area began showing up on their days off to get their hair done properly. On March 20th, a white male general paid a visit. He wanted to see every member of the unit, but Adams told them that only a third of the women were available to appear in formation. The others were working, sleeping, showering, eating, or otherwise occupied. Unsatisfied, the general told Adams he would send a white lieutenant to show the major how to run her battalion. Over my dead body, sir, she replied. The outraged general left, promising Adams she would hear from him again. By midnight, she learned that he was preparing to draw up court-martial charges against her. The officers of the 6888 rushed to draw up their own court-martial charges against the general, accusing him of violating an order that prohibited racially charged language. The goal of that order was to keep America's allies from worrying about a lack of harmony among U.S. troops. The general ultimately dropped his charges and the 6888 dropped theirs. By May 1945, the women had achieved in three months what no one before them had managed to do in two years. They cleared their mail backlog in England. From there, they were transferred to Rune, France, to tackle some more mail issues. The women of the 6888 found themselves in a jubilant country, fresh from extended VE Day celebrations. Their pride at being part of military history intensified as they slept in barracks where Napoleon's troops were said to have stayed and marched to the site where Joan of Arc had been burned at the stake. On the continent, the group had a more interesting social life than they'd had in Birmingham. 
the athletes in the 6888 formed sports teams and competed with other WAC units. When word got out that a battalion of African-American women was stationed in Rune, black male soldiers began flocking to their gates along with some white ones. The men invited them out on weekends for dinner, dancing, and other excursions. One of those outings led to McClendon's darkest memory of the 6888. Three women from the battalion, Mary Bankston, Mary Barlow, and Dolores Brown were killed in a jeep accident while riding with male soldiers. I had to identify two of the girls because they didn't have their dog tags on, McClendon recalls. The battalion's leaders made all the funeral arrangements, tasking German prisoners with building wooden caskets. The young women were laid to rest at the Normandy American Cemetery, three of only four women to be buried there alongside more than 9,000 men. The fourth, Elizabeth Ann Richardson, was a Red Cross volunteer killed in a Piper Cub plane crash near Rhone in July 1945. Before the 6888 left Europe, Adams received a visit from the general who'd berated her in Birmingham. It's not easy to say what I've come to say, he told her, according to her memoir. The only Negroes I've ever known personally were those who were in the servant capacity or my subordinates in the army. It's been a long time since anyone challenged me, black or white, but you took me on. You outsmarted me, and I'm proud that I know you. The 6888 finished their work in early 1946, clearing the last backlogs of mail in Paris. A booklet called The Whack, published in late 1945, declared that the 6888 had broken all existing records for mail delivery. Their leader, Charity Adams, was promoted to lieutenant colonel. After the WAC directors, it was the highest possible rank for a woman in the U.S. Armed Forces at the time. That was the reading of the first half of the story, Message Received, written by Jeannie Gertz, and it appeared in the March 2023 edition of the Smithsonian Magazine, where you can find the rest of the story. If you've just turned us on, you're listening to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner. The next reading on today's program is from Anscape.com and is titled, Negro League's Baseball Museum Looks to Capitalize on Popularity of Black Baseball. It was written by Justice B. Hill and published May 4, 2023. The subtitle to the article is, President Bob Kendrick Kicks Off Campaign to Raise $30 Million for Relocation and Larger Endowment. Bob Kendricks holds in his hands the narrative of black baseball, and he's not about to let it slip through his grasp. As president of the Negro League's Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri, Kendrick has had grand plans for the narrative and for the museum, none grander, however, than the plan he announced Tuesday. Kendrick, 61, kicked off a campaign to raise more than $30 million to establish a larger endowment and relocate the museum to a larger venue next door to the Paseo YMCA at 1814 Paseo Boulevard, where Rube Foster founded the Negro Leagues in 1920. I've been kind of sitting on this for a while, Kendrick said. I don't think the museum's going to get any hotter than it is right now, so we've got to strike while the iron's hot. How hot is black baseball? Not since Buck O'Neill, the iconic Hall of Famer who joined baseball historian Larry Lester and a handful of others in launching the museum in 1990, became a media darling after he was featured in Ken Burns' Emmy-winning documentary Baseball in 1994, has the museum drawn this kind of attention. 
Kendrick said the museum, or as he likes to refer to it as, the house that Buck built, got a significant boost in 2020 when Major League Baseball decided it would accept as valid the statistical records of more than 3,400 ballplayers who played in black leagues because racism barred them from Major League Baseball. The good news has since kept rolling in. In March, Sony included a Negro Leagues mode in its video game MLB The Show 23, shining a spotlight on some of the best players in the history of the national pastime. Their inclusion in the popular video game has stoked interest in O'Neal, Satchel Paige, Jackie Robinson, John Donaldson, and other greats from black baseball. As its mission, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, which shares space with the American Jazz Museum, tells the oft-forgotten stories of these black men who played in leagues where only the ball was white. Theirs is a rich story to tell, said Raymond Doswell, who left the museum as its curator in mid-January to run Greenwood Rising, the museum dedicated to the history of the Greenwood District, where up to 300 black people were killed by a white mob in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921. Doswell played a part in crafting a future for the museum. We have limits when you share a building, he said. So in essence, in consolidating everything, if there was room to do it and resources to do so, it made a lot of sense. In the current building, we are locked in, in terms of growth. Kendrick echoed Doswell's point. He knew, however, if the fires were to remain white hot, he needed to think big, to think bold. And he did. Since he couldn't build atop the current building or expand it outward, he had to build elsewhere. Next to the historic YMCA was as good a place as he could ask for. Situated there, the new building can serve as a gateway into the 18th and Vine District, once the hub of black cultural life in Kansas City. On the new site, the museum will feature interactive exhibitions similar to what is seen in video games. The new building, of course, will include the replica diamond called Field of Legends, the popular life-size statues of the greatest of the great Negro leaguers. People would kill me if I didn't take it, Kendrick said. His plans to move the museum, its artwork, and its exhibits will cost $25 million of the $30 million sought in the fundraising campaign. In announcing the relocation, Kendrick disclosed a contribution of a $1 million grant from Bank of America in Kansas City, a financial powerhouse locally and globally. Matthew Linsky, president of Bank of America Kansas City, wanted the bank to play a significant role in helping the museum grow in the 18th and Vine District. The bank put its money behind the relocation, and Linsky said its brand might draw other businesses in the market to the project. I've had outreach and CEOs from other businesses I work with that are interested, he said. Putting our weight behind it, not even our money, is an amplifier for Bob locally where businesses we work with will take note. Kendrick sees these partnerships as important to the success of the project. He also sees a role for Major League Baseball to play. He's looking for the league and team owners to pitch in. Although he praised MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred's decision to validate Negro League statistics, Kendrick called that decision just a starting point for what the league needs to do to right its past. I told the commissioner and his people, look, man, you can't wash your hands of your sins and then walk away from it, Kendrick said. That's disingenuous. He said he'll ask Manfred to carry a big load of the fundraising campaign, which might also include encouraging current and retired major league ball players to chip in and visit the museum when they come to Kansas City to play the Royals. Kendrick, who resolved to rescue the museum from debt when he became president in 2011, 
said he's not asking Manfred and baseball to do anything more than what they do for the National Baseball Hall of Fame. He's not looking for a partner to control the narrative of black baseball, no more than Cooperstown, New York is for baseball broadly. I'm glad they're all in for the Hall of Fame. That honor and what it means, said Kendrick, who has the museum on sound financial footing. But it shouldn't mean any more to them than what the Negro League's baseball museum does. Right now, he's aiming to complete the relocation in 2026, the same year that Kansas City will host some of the World Cup games in soccer. When the world comes to Kansas City, Kendrick said, I want there to be a new Negro Leagues baseball museum to go along with the Buckle Neal Bridge so some of the players can walk across it to see the new museum. Doswell shared Kendrick's vision of the future, which the Bank of America grant will help make happen. I think this is a good day for the museum, Doswell said. That was the article, Negro Leagues Baseball Museum Looks to Capitalize on Popularity of Black Baseball. It was written by Justice Hill and appeared at the Anscape.com website on May 4th, 2023. The next reading on today's program comes from DallasWeekly.com. The title is, Texas Crown Act, House Bill 567, Passes Texas House 143-5. It was written by the Dallas Weekly staff and published April 14, 2023. House Bill 567, also known as the Texas Crown Act, has received final passage on third reading in the Texas House with a vote of 143 to 5. The bill is now heading over to the Texas Senate. The Crown Act, which stands for Creating a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair, would prohibit discrimination on the basis of hair texture or protective hairstyle associated with race. Representative Retta Bowers, primary author of the bill, had the following to say, I am overjoyed with the results of today's vote on the Texas Crown Act. We've now sent House Bill 567 over to the Texas Senate, and all eyes will be on that chamber to join the Texas House in taking a strong stance against hair-based discrimination. I am incredibly thankful for the broad, sweeping, and bipartisan support from every corner of the state, from the grassroots advocates that volunteered to show up on their own time to testify, to the Democrats and Republicans that joined me on day one as joint authors and co-authors, we couldn't have done it without you. At Joa Asamoah, Crown Coalition co-creator added the following. As the racial and gender equity champion who conceptualized, developed the legislative and social impact strategies for, and leads the nationwide Crown Act movement on behalf of the Crown Coalition, I applaud the Texas House for voting to pass the bill on third reading. In Texas, tackling injustice and protecting people's civil rights require members to work together. I thank Representative Retta Bowers for her partnership and leadership, and I look forward to the Crown Act becoming law in Texas this session. Twenty states have enacted legislation to outlaw race-based hair discrimination, such as Tennessee and Virginia, and our neighbors Louisiana and New Mexico. Texas has the opportunity this year to become the 21st state on that list. That was the article, Texas Crown Act House Bill 567 Passes Texas House 143-5. It was written by the Dallas Weekly staff, published April 14, 2023, and it appeared at the DallasWeekly.com website. Next on today's program is a reading about a local Kansas City university. The title is, Commission Recommends Renaming Jewel Hall After Enslaved People Who Built It. It was written by Maria Benevento, 
published April 28, 2023, and it appeared at the Kansas City Beacon's kcbeacon.org website. The subtitle to the story is, Proposals Also Include Scholarships for Descendants of People Enslaved by Two Prominent University Founders. The Board of Trustees has not yet approved the proposals. A commission created to study William Jewell College's historical ties to slavery recommends renaming Jewell Hall, its oldest building, to honor the enslaved people who built it. The commission's recommendations, finalized earlier this month, not only include renaming Jewell Hall, but also updating the college's history to address slavery, bringing more black faculty and writers to campus, and establishing scholarships for the descendants of people enslaved by two prominent founders as well as for descendants of black employees who were not allowed to enroll before 1961. The commission also recommended changing its name from the Racial Reconciliation Commission to one that honors Catherine Kitty Thompson Alexander, a black woman the college employed as a cook in the late 1800s. College President Elizabeth McLeod Walls established the group in April 2021. All of the recommendations stem from the question, What are we going to do about this history, said Rodney Smith, Commission Chair and Vice President for Access and Engagement. Few of the recommendations are a done deal. As of April 24th, the Commission had not decided whether to bring all of the proposals to the next Board of Trustees meeting in May or to delay some items that will be heavier lifts, such as renaming Jewel Hall, Smith said. Some of the proposals are simple to implement, but many are more complicated and require additional planning and board approval. The Commission's proposals come after revelations from the Slavery, Memory, and Justice Project, SMJP, an independent group of student, faculty, and alumni researchers that college founders and early benefactors had deep ties to slavery. The College's Reconciliation Commission also issued a report acknowledging ties to slavery in January 2022. Stakeholders disagree on how to respond to the discoveries. Some express concerns that the college's commission isn't basing its recommendations on strong enough historical research, and some question whether the proposed action steps are substantive or merely performative. Smith said he doesn't expect consensus, especially on items like renaming Jewel Hall. We felt like it was the right thing to do, he said. We felt like it was an acknowledgement of that history, and we're owning the fact that not only did enslaved Africans build that building, but we should do something to honor them. The Commission's recommendations first call for drafting a complete history that addresses the college's ties to slavery. SMJP researchers discovered that although the college's three official histories mention slavery only five times, Primary sources reveal college founders' deep ties to slavery. The group learned that enslaved people helped build Jewel Hall, founder Alexander Donovan was staunchly pro-slavery, and contrary to previous accounts, namesake Dr. William Jewell did not free all the people he enslaved. The researchers have also found the college's founders, early trustees, and major financial backers owned a combined total of at least 1,000 enslaved people, said Christopher Wilkins, a founding member of the project alongside his students. Wilkins was an associate professor of history in the history department chair at William Jewell. Before he left the college in December, he raised concerns that the administration's response to the SMJP research violated his and his students' academic freedom. The independent group's revelations and the college's decision to form a separate commission to investigate slavery have led to conversations about who has the right to determine the truth of the college's history and what that history should mean for the present. 
As The Beacon reported last year, some SMJP members and alumni criticized the college's report for omitting details about the founders' pro-slavery connections and overstating their humanitarian actions. Smith has reiterated that the college's initial report was a draft that will be revised and expanded. But he said it's undetermined when that will happen or who will write a complete history. The SMJP, which plans to publish its own lengthy report as early as December, could write the history, he said. In some regards, we're waiting on the report from the SMJP so we could reference their work. The Reconciliation Commission lacks a clear mandate and a plan for how historical inquiry and policy recommendations will work, said Agatha Achinike, a senior history of ideas and philosophy major. He has been following the topic as a former archive student manager and current chief editor of the Hilltop Monitor, the student news site. Achinike said he's concerned that the commission's historical report provides a weak foundation for decision making. It's not only that they have no procedure to do things, but also that they don't really understand the nature of what they're doing at all because they have no historical context, he said. Achenike suggested that the SMJP could continue its research while the commission focuses on presenting to the Board of Trustees policy recommendations that are based on that research and reflect student input. That would require a reciprocal relationship between the commission and the SMJP, and that's very difficult, he said. Even without a full historical report, the college's commission has started to recommend short-term actions. It presented recommendations at a campus town hall in November. The commission discussed the recommendations at its February meeting before finalizing them this month. During the February meeting, the commission opted to identify Catherine Thompson Alexander, the cook in the 1800s, as Kitty instead of Aunt Kitty in its new name, a move based on faculty feedback to avoid infantilizing its namesake. The commission has endorsed a student senate recommendation to rename the Alexander Donovan Leadership Award after William G. Summers, the first African-American male student, according to the college. It has also renamed the Alexander Donovan Room in Brown Hall after Audrey Burchette, who the college says was its first African-American female student. The Donovan name changes are low-hanging fruit because they are easy to implement and less controversial, Smith said. But renaming Jewel Hall could be difficult because the building is on the historic registry and there isn't broad agreement for the name change. Some students argue that renaming Jewel Hall would be an erasure. Smith said that 174 years from now, no one would know that the building was ever called Jewel Hall and why it was called Jewel Hall, thus sort of rubbing away that history of the college's slaveholding founders. Renaming buildings is performative because names only have the meaning people give them, said Tavarius Pennington, an SMJP member who graduated from William Jewell last year. Those most affected should have the greatest say in whether renaming is important, he said. That name still does have meaning that isn't entirely bad. Students have done amazing research in that building, Pennington said, who was a member of the student senate, said of Jewell Hall. They have learned a lot about Jewell's history, perhaps through that building, so there's value within it, but it's really a question of who's using it now and what's best for them. He would also like to see Jewel community members use the improved understanding of the college's history to move from performative steps to action. That looks like actually getting people aligned around common objectives, common understandings, interests, he said, and moving from there, seeing what happens based off the organic and grassroots organization of individuals who are interested in a problem. 
The commission's recommendations contain two proposals for scholarships meant to address the generational impacts of slavery and discrimination. One would create an annual scholarship for descendants of the college's black employees who were not allowed to enroll before 1961. The other proposal would award scholarships to descendants of the people Jewel and Donovan enslaved. The scholarships focus on two founders because of their prominence, Smith said, but could later expand. A final section of the commission's recommendations contains suggestions for creating a better future, such as establishing partnerships and programs that promote understanding of black history, slavery, and African-American life and culture. It notes the college has already joined the University Studying Slavery Consortium, a group of higher learning institutions that share best practices on researching their ties to slavery. Other suggestions in that section include joining the Greater Kansas City Black History Study Group, starting a faculty exchange program with a historically black college or university, and honoring faculty and staff who create an equitable and inclusive learning environment. Discussing Jewel's history and recent events, such as a racist incident on campus last semester, conveys what the community values, Smith said. Having candid conversations and trying to figure out a way to live better together, I think it sends the message that the other kind of behaviors are not welcome, he said. This is not a place where we discriminate. Honesty about Jewel's history can have a powerful impact on students, Pennington said. It's just a way of confronting history in a very tactile sense, right? You can actually go to Jewel Hall. You can actually walk through foundations that were laid by people in bondage, he said. There are bricks with the fingerprints of slaves, and that means something. That was the article, Commission Recommends Renaming Jewel Hall After Enslaved People Who Built It. It was written by Maria Benevento, published April 28, 2023, and it appeared at the kcbeacon.org website. And the final story for today is titled, Civil Rights Attorney Fred Gray Receives NAACP's Legal Defense Fund's Lifetime Achievement Award. It was written by the BET staff, published May 5, 2023 at the BET.com website. The subtitle to the story is, The 92-year-old activist, state legislator, and preacher was honored for his numerous contributions to America's most important civil rights battles. Fred Gray, the attorney who fought some of Black America's most important legal battles, is referred to as the chief counsel of the civil rights era. For his heroics in American history, he received his flowers Thursday night, May 4th, from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, where the group gave him its Thurgood Marshall Lifetime Achievement Award. I have received many awards, but none of these awards means to me as much as this award coming from the Legal Defense Fund here in honor of Thurgood Marshall, said Gray during an acceptance speech at the organization's 35th National Equal Justice Awards Dinner on Thursday, May 4th in New York. Gray was among several honorees at the dinner, including billionaire Robert F. Smith, chair of Vista Equity Partners, philanthropic company The Emerson Collective, and Nike Incorporated's Jordan brand. Gray is 92 years old and still practicing law. He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Joe Biden in 2022 for his steadfast work at the forefront of several civil rights movement cases. The most notable is the Supreme Court case in which the NAACP started legal action against the city of Montgomery, Alabama. This resulted in the desegregation of the bus system there after the defiance of Rosa Parks, Claudette Colvin, and others 
which resulted in a year-long bus boycott in 1955 and 1956. He was also the attorney for men who were unwittingly involved in an experiment conducted in Tuskegee, Alabama by the U.S. government for more than 40 years. In the Tuskegee syphilis study, hundreds of people were infected with syphilis and went untreated by government doctors who wished to study the effects of the disease. He secured a $10 million settlement for the survivors and their heirs in 1974. A contemporary of Marshall, these were two of many cases that he handled in a nearly 70-year career in law and defense of black people and working in tandem with the Legal Defense Fund. During his speech, he explained why he chose working as an attorney as a way of making a difference. I became a lawyer in Montgomery, Alabama, when I saw we were having problems on the buses, he said. They said lawyers help people solve problems, so I decided to become a lawyer, and not just a lawyer anywhere. I wanted to become a lawyer in Alabama and destroy everything segregated I could, and in 67 years, I've done that. That was the article. Civil rights attorney Fred Gray receives NAACP Legal Defense Fund's Lifetime Achievement Award. It was written by the BET staff, published May 5, 2023, at the BET.com website. That's all the time I have this week. If you would like to replay this program or listen to past editions of the African American Hour, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts or at the Audio Reader website at reader.ku.edu. I'm Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour.